Think about a podcast ad about a mattress. No one needs another podcast ad about a mattress, but here's the thing. Your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. It's the same thing with infrastructure monitoring. You don't think about it often, but it's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. So get your monitoring hosted in the cloud with Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor. Now with 50% off monthly subscriptions for new customers for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS. That's PRTG.com with the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word. If you've been staring down the barrel of network automation and wonder what the proper approach might be, well... Today's episode is for you. I'm chatting with Tony Burke for a survey of what network automation tools and techniques have become the default standard. Now that we've got a few years of network automation behind us, what what are the key approaches most people take? Now, don't get me wrong. It's not one size fits all because it never is. It depends applies to network automation just as much as with any other technical domain. But there's enough predictability in what most folks are doing to get you pointed in the right direction. In today's conversation, Tony and I are going to touch on when you need to consider network automation, the stages of network automation, how deep into which you're getting, the concepts of continuous integration and continuous delivery, open source and vendor-specific automation tools, and how to prepare your network and your organization for automation. I'm your host, Ethan Banks, and this is Heavy Networking, the flagship podcast of the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. Now, Tony, you've been on the show recently. Welcome back. Uh, thank you for pitching this idea and and the outline uh, of what this show is going to be. Dude, I didn't have to do any work at all. This was amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, my pleasure. It's a, it's a topic I, I talk about quite a bit um, in classes and so forth. So it's something I'm very comfortable and very happy to talk about. Well, before we get into the, the, the details of the state of network automation, Tony, I think I want to understand why you think now is the right time for us to be discussing where things are at. Well, I think over the past couple of years, um, even like the past maybe five years or even less, we've really kind of solidified in terms of tools, methodologies with network automation. And it's starting to take more of a, of a shape that can be consumed easily. Uh, or not easily, maybe, but uh, but more predictably, and we've kind of sorted out all of the um, ifs, haves, and and what have yous, ifs, buts, and what have yous with uh, network automation. Yeah, I, I would kind of agree with that. I would say three years ago, even there was just this explosion of tools and approaches and different libraries that were written for Python and vendors were scrambling to kind of come up with their own strategies. And a lot of that feels like it's it's settled down now. So there's different paths that you can choose that are have been trodden. People have tried things out. There's been a lot of blog posts written. There's better documentation out there than there was. And of course, people like you that are out there uh, teaching on a lot of this material. So it, it does feel like things have, well, if they're not mature, Tony, I think they've matured somewhat, right? Yeah, we're we're maybe we're in the beginning of the maturity era for network automation, at least for uh, data center and wired campus. Okay, well, if we're that far, then let let's start with with drivers. Uh, if I'm considering network automation, I don't want to do it just because it looks cool on my resume. Although maybe I do want to do it for that reason. But then, <laughs> I mean, from a practical standpoint, if I'm looking at my network, what what are the drivers where I look at my network and go, "Yeah, I've got good reasons to be automating this monster." It's a really good point. We're not doing automation just for the sake of doing automation. We're not doing automation because it's cool, because it's trendy. We're doing it to serve some sort of purpose. And generally, and of course, it's networking, so it always, it depends, like you mentioned, and I'm grateful you brought that up. But generally, there's three different uh, drivers for automation that I've seen. One are when configurations get complex. EVPN, VXLAN, in the data center, and, and we're seeing it in the wired campus now, too. 
that's probably the the biggest driver in the data center is that these EVPN VXLAN configurations are quite complex. There's a lot of unique configurations. So there's you can't just cut and paste like you could with a traditional SVI and VLAN config, what we used to call like the core aggregation access layer, because every leaf uh, or leaf pair needs its own route targets, uh, route distinguishers, VNI to VLAN assignments, et cetera. So the, the configurations get complex. Another driver is configuration at scale. So if I have dozens or hundreds or even thousands of devices that I need to make consistent changes to, I might want to use automation in order to do that reliably. And then uh, the third one is just configuration changes frequently and reliably. Um, it, most of us who have worked in networking for a long enough time are have worked in an environment where we're terrified of making changes because generally they haven't gone very well. So we want to have some sort of methodology to make changes more reliably, more predictably, and be able to back out of those changes if things go south anyway. We, uh, I've been involved in many network changes where you made a change, it didn't work, and then you tried to back out, and it still didn't work, and then now you're in a sev one outage. And adding meetings, committees, re restrictions, change control meetings, adding more people to the change control process, that hasn't really gotten us more stable networks. So we have to have another solution. And, and network automation is one of the possibilities, one of the tools that can help us get there. Yeah, I was one of the people on those change control committees where I, as a senior engineer, I would have to approve whatever the control was. And I would say, okay, you, you wrote a great change. This is going to go well, uh, assuming it does. Uh, but what's your backup plan? How are you going to back this monster out if it doesn't go well? And then, you know, have that engineer write that back out change. Then I'd review it. And uh, and sometimes, you know, you get it right. And sometimes you don't. And sometimes the change you're making, you can't practically speaking back it out. It all depends on what, you know, what you're doing. And you really want, you know, an automated process to kind of handle that for you. Because uh, doing it by hand, especially at the at three in the morning when, uh, you know, as you, as you said, you're dealing with a seven one outage now at this point because things just haven't been going well um, that's not where you want your head to be you want automation to just make everything go back to the way that it was right there's got to be a better way than uh, network change by notepad copy and paste and i think that's what most yeah. of us have done <laughs> at, at one point or another including my, you know i've done it myself you mentioned configuring at scale. Um, now, would that include repetitive changes? You know, for example, something as routine as standing up a new virtual IP in pool members on a load balancer, let's say. Yeah, it could be something like that, or it could be adding VLANs to various ports. It could be changing out uh, authentic, like if you're using SSH key authentication, it could be just cycling through SSH keys on various devices. One of the most common ones that I, uh, in that kind of, in that kind of realm was um, if you have a network and you have a hypervisor and then you've got a blade switch in between because the network devices are configured differently than the blade switches than the hypervisors. So you've got to go in and light up the VLANs that connect the networks and the hypervisor to the networks, to the VLANs in your network. So someone would go in and, and make maybe make some manual changes. Uh, Cisco UCS, for example, it was a great example because there wasn't really a good way in UCS to add a lot of VLANs simultaneously. It was a GUI or you'd have to go through one by one. If you're doing like a hundred VLANs, it would take forever. So using some sort of some sort of script to instantiate light those VLANs up is a great example there. 
Yeah, so configuring a scale, if you heard that and you were thinking, well, I don't have hundreds or thousands of devices. Yeah, but do you have a change that you do over and over and over and over again over the course of a year? It's worth taking the time to automate that change uh, would be added into that mix. Okay, Tony, so you've got, uh, these are our drivers for automation, complex, uh, scale, repeatable changes, and then just that reliability uh, of that, whatever that change might be, being able to reliably make the change and then back that change back out, getting the network to known states, known good states, and thinking about network as, as a state, as opposed to something you're copying and pasting configurations into from a notepad script, as you said. Um, what are the various types of, of of automation? You've written down several different ways that we can do automation. And I, I was thinking about this as I was reading your, your outline. I was thinking of it as, as stages, like how deep do you want to go? Uh, yeah. So so walk us through these different stages, these types of automation, Tony. So there's a couple of different types of automation you can do. And, and you don't, it's not necessarily like an, a, an escalation. You don't have to go from one and then naturally migrate to a, a more advanced level. Um, you can stick with one of these if that's what's works. That's what works for you, of course. But uh, generally speaking, these are, there's four levels of automation that I see, give or take. Uh, the first one is supplemental automation or one-off automation. So you're still configuring your devices manually. You're still doing, you're still a CLI jockey. You're still going in, typing in your commands. But there's a, something, that repetitive task we talked about that we might need to do um, a one-off for, like uh, I've got a big network, I've got a thousand network devices, and we have to change our NTP servers for all of them. And you know that I could go in and do that on a thousand devices, but that would take forever. If I had a little bit of Python knowledge or a little bit of Ansible knowledge, I could do that and I could do it reliably across a thousand devices. Yeah. So we call that supplemental automation. You're still manual configuring things mostly by yeah. hand, but we're supplementing it with some one-off automation. Uh, back in the day, I'd say we we a lot of us did some variation of this. We might have used Expect uh, as a scripting yeah. language to do that. Um, that was handy, and it was you know, again that repeatable thing. You could you could feed it a list and just have it grind away and do some simple change like you were describing. Yeah, it's the easiest one to do, um, and it's it doesn't it doesn't substantially change your process, your your uh, how you manage your network. Uh, so it's an easy one to dip your toes into the water, so to speak. Yeah, you're not thinking about infrastructure as code. You're not worried about GitHub and, uh, and and configuration state or interacting with an API. It's exactly what you said. It's it's doing what you're familiar with, just automating it so you're not actually typing everything into the keyboard yourself. You set up a script that's going to, it's almost like a mail merge or something like that in Word. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. So the next type is configuration management. This is the demarcation line. From here on out, we're no longer configuring the devices manually. So we're no longer going in and configuring a device. I think it was Cisco uh, that had a, when, when ACI came out back in like 2014, Cisco had this kind of unofficial, unofficial motto, I think. And it was that the CLI is dead. And everyone got really kind of angry about that. And I think mostly because they thought, you know, what's the opposite of a CLI to network people? It's a GUI. And we've hated GUIs for quite some time. We've had <laughs> lots of lots of bad GUIs over the years. But what they really meant was that we're not going to be configuring devices manually, at least especially in the data center, that we're going to move towards some other type of configuration method and it's not going to be manual. We're not going to go in and do conf T anymore. 
Well, Tony, I'll add that the, the mindset was shifting at that point to begin thinking of the network as an entity <clears throat> as a whole and not device by device. And that was a major shift in thinking where before it was like, this is a router, this is a switch. You log into these two individual things and with the correct configuration stanzas, make them talk to each other in an appropriate way with VLAN tagging and routing protocols and, and the such like. ACI and, and another of the thinking that was going on at the time with OpenFlow and so on was shifting to be like, well, what if we think of all the switches and the routers and the network as one big thing and we need to program it from a central controller and uh, put everything into all the individual pieces that need to be done, but from a controller perspective? Um, where the network is designed, again, with that central uh, way of thinking about it. You don't want to touch all the individual devices. You want that central controller to do all that thinking and you program it from there. And uh, and I agree with you on the, the GUI thing for sure, too. Uh, <laughs> they weren't all wonderful. Um, but it was more than just shifting, again, from, from CLI to GUI. It was also shifting thinking from device by device to network as a whole. Right. Yeah. Especially in the data center when there's not really any value in treating the individual leafs and spines individually. We, 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 it's a fabric. It's the fabric thinking. So even if it's not so much a controller that's making all the choices, it's the controller that's handling the configuration. So there are mm. some controller based systems like um, there are big switch networks had their uh, big cloud fabric, which is now Arista um, Converge Cloud Fabric. I think that's what it's called. And it actually, the, the controller did all of the thinking. It did all the routing protocols and stuff. Whereas something like most EVPN networks uh, are configured centrally, but uh, the central controller device is not doing the thinking. It's just doing the configuration. So Right. Yes. Yeah, 100%. yeah. So, uh, yeah, especially in the data center, it just makes sense to treat the entire data center network as a single fabric that has access points and routing and switching and so forth. So to that end, the next step in automation types is configuration management. So we're pushing configs from a central place. So like I said, that means we're not going into the switch anymore and doing CLI commands, at least for configuration. Now we can still go into the CLI and do show commands like Cisco ACI, for example, there is no way to make a configuration change from a switch. You have to go to the controller to do the, 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 the APIC controller cluster. And uh, and other other EVPN networks generally, yeah, you can make a config change on those devices, but you really don't want to unless it's like an extreme emergency. So the configurations are going from a centralized place. You can do that. Uh, Cloud Vision from Arista, that's a product that I'm, uh, it's, it, that's an automation platform that I'm very familiar with because I teach it. Cisco ACI, I used to teach Cisco ACI, uh, Appstra, there's others as well. So we're, we're pushing configs from a centralized location. And, and where would you categorize solutions like uh, like Glueware uh, that they kind of do that same thing too, Tony, where there's you know, configuration stored in a centralized place and like Glueware would take a model of the network and abstract away the underlying details. So you could even have a multi-vendor network that has different configuration stanzas if you were to go to the CLI. Uh, but if you just say, hey, I want NTP on all these switches, no matter who the vendor is to look like X. Glueware would push those changes out. Uh, would you put that in this configuration management category? I don't think so. I mean, I'm not familiar with Glueware, but if we're actually talking about generating configurations, that's the next step. Ah. So configuration management is like, you know, think, think about it a number of steps, supplemental automation, that's step one, configuration management, step two. And then the third step is where we get really interesting is uh, configuration generation. So we're using a, a, a concept known as a data model where we're modeling what we want to happen 
Um, you can think of it as, you know, intent-based networking is, is one way to, that, that it's been described, but we've got this file or a series of files where we define how we want things to look. It goes through some sort of templating engine and then syntax gets spit out. And we take that syntax and we place them on the switches. So Cisco ACI, Cloud Vision, or even Ansible with Jinja templates where we're, we're using these data models, a little bit of logic and a template, and then out comes a config for every device. We push that those configuration changes to those devices. Since I brought up Glueware, yes, I would put Glueware in this this category, not in configuration management, but in configuration generation, because in their case, I happen to be somewhat familiar with them because they've been a sponsor for Packet Pushes over the years. So I've talked to them a lot over the last decade or so. There is data modeling that's involved, and they do abstract away what all the syntax is. You, you punch into the data model what you're looking for, and they spit out syntax that is uh, appropriate for whatever the platform is that you're trying to push that change to. So, yeah. Yeah, and configuration generation and configuration management will typically will work hand in hand. So the um, if we're going to generate those configs, we're going to need to get them onto a device. Um, it's great that we generated the config, but it doesn't make as much sense to then put it into a notepad and then copy and paste it. So the configuration generation inherently has a way to get those get that syntax onto switches. Got it. Okay. So supplemental automation, kind of the, the baby step, what we all kind of know uh, and have probably played with, if anything. Then configuration management, you've lumped Cisco ACI, Arista Cloud Vision into that. Uh, step three, configuration generation. Um, we've added uh, Ansible with Jinja templates to the mix here. You know, the idea of working from a data model that is abstracting away the configuration syntax, but then generates from the data model what the syntax needs to be. Then what's our final step, Tony? Well, one more thing about the configure the data model. So like a data model might be a YAML file. It might be, a, it could be even be an Excel spreadsheet. And it just says VLAN 10, VLAN 20, VLAN 30, maybe an SVI or an Anycast IP address for it. And then the, the templating system reads that information from whatever that data model is and then spits out the syntax. So there's a lot of variability in what these data models can be or even how they're formatted, but it contains the essential information and generally does not contain any syntax, with some exceptions. Yang does seem to have won mostly. Would you agree with that? I think so. Um, it Yang, I, I personally really enjoy Yang because it is human readable for the most part. Uh, we do, it's um, uh, where JSON uses the, the, the braces and it's a little bit less easy to read. XML is a little, little bit less easy to read. But YAML is both human readable and easy to work with uh, with automation, easy to parse it with uh, with a simple script and a and a like a YAML module in Python. So I, I would say YAML has won mostly, but it doesn't have to be YAML. I've seen many other types that work just fine too. Like I said, Excel. This is one that a guy I used to work with, Carl. He actually wrote a script that configures ACI from it was a python script that configures aci from an excel spreadsheet so you download the excel spreadsheet you fill out the, the thing and then it goes in and instantiates uh aci we're automating the automator in, in in that case carl montanari by the way that's that's him that's him yeah he's been on the show too he uh, he had a, a automation tool called scraply that i assume he's yeah. still working with i haven't talked to him about it for a while but yeah yep yeah, that's him 
Point being, you can take anything that can be a data source, and as long as you can identify data elements within that data source, you can use that as your data model. Um, Yang and readability. I'm going to have to revisit some Yang models, Tony, because I remember it being, I haven't looked at any Yang models for a while, but uh, when I did spend a bunch of time there, they seemed a bit XML-y and a lot of nesting structures and a little bit clunky to get my head around, but uh, maybe that's, maybe I just need to spend more time with it to get my head into it. Yeah, it, it's got a learning curve to to be sure. Um, I find it's the easiest of those of structured data formats, and it does take some getting used to. Um, but I think there's a, a tool called a linter. So it's kind of like spell check for like YAML or Python or whatever. And it's built into a lot of these IDEs like VS Code. So when you're editing a YAML file, if you make a mistake, like an indentation, like there's lots of indentation you know, issues that'll come up with YAML. Like if you're writing a if you're writing something in YAML, there's a problem. It's oftentimes it's indentation. It'll uh, do little red under uh, like red underscore squiggly lines, like you make it like you made a spelling mistake in Word. Mm-hmm. So it's a syntax checker. So it'll tell you in real time if you've made a mistake. So that really does help out a lot with that. Yeah, especially with YAML, <laughs> where of all yeah. things, the indentation can screw you up. Yeah. All right. So what's my final step then, Tony? Mm-hmm. So the final step, and again, you don't have to go through all of these steps. If you you can pick one of these and just stay there for the you know the entire organization's lifespan, that's fine. But you know, different methods for different people and different organizations. But the most sophisticated that we have is CI/CD, continuous integration, continuous delivery, or also continuous integration to continuous deployment. So it's a pipeline for changes. Changes are made, pre-tested, deployed, and then post-tested. So and on every part of that, or at least most of that is done through automation. It's a concept we've borrowed heavily from rapid software development. You know, that you think about the the Facebooks, the Twitters, the LinkedIn's, uh, the, the Netflixes, they're making dozens of changes in production per day, if not more. And how are they doing that without completely melting down their environment? You know, we think about it in networking, if we make a change a month, you know, back in the 2000s i think that was probably the worst time for network changes at least at least from what i've experienced you know we were still making things up as we went along but we didn't have a lot of reliability in our changes and things would melt down we were terrified of changes and i think in a lot of cases we still are so thinking about making like 10 network changes to your infrastructure per day should probably makes most of us break out into a heavy sweat so how do they do it well, and that's a fair question in that it would get to the point on some of the network environments that I've worked on where it'd be like, it's Friday. I don't, you're not even going to log in to make a description field change. Don't do it. It's too risky. Yeah. You can't know. Just absolutely not under any circumstances will you be logging into a switch today. Sit back and look at the pretty graphs and don't do anything unless something breaks and you have to react. Other than that, leave it alone. And so that, that is a very valid question. I mean, how do you safely make small changes uh, that are that are safe and that are low risk and that an organization would be comfortable allowing to happen without the arduous change control process? And I get one window a month that's two hours long and and all yeah. of that kind of thing. I think that sounds like what you're getting at here. Yeah. And at the end of the year, I mean, think about at the end of the year, most organizations stop all changes at November 15th or thereabouts and then don't mm-hmm. start up again until the first or second second week of January. 
uh, because of the holidays and everyone's taking time off. They want a stable network. So this just creates this really calcified, inflexible network that we're we're scared to even look at directly. So when the rest of the IT organization, the storage compute, they're all making more rapid changes than we are. So we've got to we've got to figure out a way or we don't have to, but in a lot of cases, we're being compelled to figure out a way to make things more reliable. So uh, the concept of continuous integration, continuous delivery is, like I said, is borrowed heavily from the rapid software development. So the way that they do it is they make a, a code change, they commit it to a repository, and it, it oftentimes will kick off a set of automated tests, a set of automated unit tests. Just little simple tests to check to see if this code does this, if it behaves this or that. And if it doesn't pass the test, then they go back and make some fixes to the code until it passes all the tests. Then it's ready for deployment. Then they'll go and do an automated deployment. They might even do what's called a canary deployment where they only deploy it to part of their infrastructure. And then some of the users get put on that code versus other users get put on the old code. And if everything looks good, they can do post-deployment tests. If things go badly, they can just revert back. They have an automated way to revert back to the previous code. If it works well, then they just move on to the next idea. Like, I, I want this icon to be over here instead of over here. So coder goes in, makes those changes, goes through the tests and repeat. And if you find a problem that a test didn't, um, uh, didn't see, well, then you write a new test. And eventually you get this long list of tests, kind of like how we do with uh, with change control. We add more people to the meetings. We add more steps to the process, except instead of adding days or even months to that change control process, adding a new test just adds a few seconds. So we get these iterated, iterative tests. So we so we can take that and apply it a lot of it into networking. So in networking, we, like we said, we have those data models. We make a change to a data model or we make a change to a template. So we run it through some tests. Does it generate syntax? And most of most network devices will have a way to take the syntax, put it onto a switch and just have it check the syntax without actually committing it. You can do a config session in most, most types of devices. And if you get a syntax error, then you know you just go back and you fix your script, you fix your template, you fix your data model. Okay, you're, you're talking about syntactic testing as opposed to uh, a functional test, like like a routing yeah. change or updating the VLAN database, something like that. Right. Well, the syntactical checking is a lot easier to do than the other checking. It's it's yeah. fairly yeah. Um, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, it's fairly trivial, and it's just one of the types of tests that you can do. So, so I'll just you know at least check the syntax. That's kind of table stakes. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. can also go in and just write a script that says, "Do we have a management interface? Is it on the right VRF? And does it have the correct gateway?" So you know how many times have you logged yourself out of a device? I've logged myself out of devices when I make it make a change. So we generate the config uh, for all the devices. We run it through a bunch of unit tests. Could be syntax uh, checks. It could be as, as sophisticated as loading it up into a virtual environment and just seeing if we get established on BGP, seeing if we get routes, you know, loopbacks showing up in the routing table, uh, seeing if we get show VLAN and we see the VLANs in the VLAN database. So there's there's a lot of different stuff that we can do before it even reaches the production systems. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, and this is where a lot of the the really cool stuff, the really new stuff is happening in the networking world, in the network automation world, because we've got this configuration generation pretty well sorted. We've got the configuration deployment pretty well sorted, but there's a lot happening in the pre-deployment uh, checking and the post-deployment checking.
Well, the, okay. So the, so the testing uh, components here is is huge for, for network automation. So to, to finally evolve to a CICD environment where you're doing all of these tests, mm-hmm. you have to know, you said something, you said a big, big thing a little earlier here about you're adding tests and then you run through this one scenario and you're like, oh, there's a test I should add. I hadn't thought of that. And you end up adding tests upon tests upon tests as you understand the sorts of things that you need to be checking. Um, a lot of us that have written manual change control plans would have a version of that, which is after I write this command, this spanning tree event should have occurred. And I'm going to verify that spanning tree has settled and that the new core switch is X and that I've got this many OSPF peers uh, showing up on this interface. That's what that should look like. And I should have this many routes, you know, these sorts of tests that you learn from experience, the kinds of things to check for. Uh, and I guess the point I'm making, Tony, is that CICD is going to be you know, an, an evolving thing. And to de-risk it thoroughly, you would need what you were getting to at the end there about ideally some kind of a, a decent virtual environment that you can run that test against to see what kind of success you have and what you might have overlooked when you were uh, building out that configuration change so that you know something bad is happening and that that test failed and then you can fix it and see that the test is good before you actually push it into production. And there's a lot to that, Tony, in my mind. Yeah, there is. And that's why when I mentioned CICD being the most sophisticated, because it does require new skill sets. Uh, I mean, all of this requires new skill sets, but this especially uh, requires uh, quite a few extra new skill sets. So it's not, CICD is not something that, like a, a one person or two person shops probably going to do. Um, this is what like the fortune 50 is starting to do. I was, I'm seeing more and more projects for the big banks or big uh, other big companies that are doing this because they might even be doing it in their development cycle and now taking the same concepts and tools and using them in the, in the networking world. Got it. Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Pessler. If you're a regular podcast listener, you've heard countless mattress ads. Now, Packet Pushers is not the kind of podcast where you'd hear a mattress ad, but maybe this is the closest we'll get. Now, the thing is, the only time you really think about your mattress is when it causes you aches and pains. That's why your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make. It's the same thing with monitoring. Your monitoring solution shouldn't cause you any aches, and you shouldn't need to think about it. It's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. Pessler PRTG monitoring software has been on the market for over 20 years and has over 500,000 users worldwide. Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor is their cloud-based solution, which means Pessler takes care of updates, backups, and maintenance, and you just focus on monitoring. It's vendor agnostic with support for SNMP, WMI, flow protocols, and much more. Setup and configuration is quick. You can be monitoring within minutes without even installing any hardware. You get real-time dashboards and customizable notifications, and pricing is flexible. You have the choice of monthly or annual subscriptions based on the number of devices you need to monitor, so you can scale as needed. And Pessler is giving new customers 50% off their monthly subscription for the first three months. Go to prtg.com, that's prtg.com, and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word, to take advantage of this offer. And make sure you always sleep soundly on a comfy mattress with a comprehensive monitoring tool. This offer ends October 2023. Now back to the podcast. Tony, another qualifying question here before we get into starting to talk about some of the tools and so on that folks are using. Cloud networking versus on-prem networking. Our context has kind of been on-prem. Is there a difference in how I would approach network automation if I'm looking at cloud networking versus on-premises networking? I don't think so. I think there are some advantages actually to on-prem or to uh, to cloud networking because 
um, it, on on-prem, it's more difficult to build a representation of our physical network in a virtual environment, because we both know that most of the vendors have really great virtualized versions of their hardware switches and routers. There are things that they can't do, like um, like QoS settings. There's not really mm -hmm. a good way to do QoS, you know, test the QoS. Nope, you got to have a chip there. You got to have hardware to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, queuing, all that kind of stuff is going to be QoS based. Um, if you're messing with uh, like the TCAM tables, if you're switching from like the, some of the some of the devices have different profiles for TCAMs and CAMs and uh, host routes versus L LPMs, et cetera. So that's a little bit harder to do. Um, you can work around it, but it's harder to do on in the cloud environment. You, you can you can just spin up a new like in um, in AWS, you just spin up another VPC, virtual private cloud, not not the Cisco MLAG, a virtual private cloud. And you just you can have a parallel environment. So you can pretty much do exactly what you're doing in production in in a virtual uh, well, they're all virtual, but in a QA dev environment. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tony, let's move the conversation along to then uh, probably what everybody's been waiting for, uh, tools and and so on. Um, there's the Ansible approach, there's Python, there are various libraries that support Python and, and yeah. other tools that come from the vendors. Can you can you walk us through what you're seeing folks implement? Sure. Uh, one more thing about CICD. Uh, another oh, yeah. another part of that would be so after the deployment is done, this is also another really important part and an exciting part is that we can do post-deployment checks. So typically, you know, think about how we do most of our, you know, we make a change. It doesn't appear to have blown up, but it might have. So what do we do? We wait for tickets before people to complain. We might do spot <laughs> checks. If I've done a change on a hundred devices, I'm not going to log into hundred devices and run 50 commands. I'm going to, I'm going to do a spot check. I'm going to check. Yep. Uh, I'd check this leaf. I check that leaf. And then we wait for alarms to come in and which may or may not be tied to our network changes. So the post-deployment checks can be, for example, there is a project from Arista. Uh, again, I, I, I teach in the Arista world, so I'm familiar with the Arista world, but other vendors have might have similar stuff. But there's a project in Arista called AVD. And part of AVD, what it can do is it can actually go in and validate the checks that you, the changes that you've done. So if, for example, if, you're, if you've got an EVPN network, one of the critical things for any EVPN network is that all the loopbacks be able to ping all the other loopbacks because we use those for uh, overlay peering. We use it for VTEP to VTEP connectivity. It's essential that they talk, that be able to communicate. So it actually goes into every leaf and spine and pings every other leaf and spine's loopbacks and will give you a report. Um, even a network that has like 18 switches, it'll do over a thousand checks. Mm. So we can be assured, we, we, we can be certain or more reasonably certain that the change we made worked the way that we thought it did. Or So we can, we can have these checks. So we can check pre-deployment and we can check post-deployment much more thoroughly than we have before. Well, the post-deployment checking is a big deal. I, I agree with you. You said it's exciting. Yeah, it is. Because I used to do exactly what you're saying. Make a big change. Everything seems like it's fine. The packets are flowing. Everything's green on the network monitoring system. Everything's okay. And my instructions to help desk would be, if you hear of these sorts of problems, and I'd list off whatever I thought the symptoms might be, if there was some kind of a connectivity thing left over after the change, ping me. It's probably going to be something I have to resolve. Not because you just, you don't know, you know, and you, you, you feel better as the day goes on and there's no fresh tickets coming in that seem like they're related. You just start to feel good. And it's like, 
okay, okay, now I can, now I can relax. So, but it would be so much better to have an automated system that could do something crazy like check a thousand odd, um, a thousand odd endpoints to make sure that everybody can connect to everybody and give you that report back. Then you're much more confident that there's no lurking problems here. Everything really does look clean and should be working a hundred percent. So that's a great point. So the pre-checks and the post-checks, there's still a lot of work being done in those worlds. There's still things that need to be figured out, some uh, tools that need to be more accessible to various vendors, like uh, AVD, uh, Arista has AVD that does those post-checks. I think PyATS for uh, for Cisco, but it's not as universal as some of the other tools are. So yeah, they're also harder to, to implement. So the pre and post-checks are harder to implement, which is why I say that there's a high degree of sophistication. So I think in the future, hopefully, we'll, it'll it'll trickle down and get and get simpler and get easier to do. And and instead of building out this CI/CD pipeline, it it'll be more like just run a couple commands and you've got this thing installed and and so forth. So there's still some work to be done there. So I don't want to give false hopes and and get everyone all excited for something that's going to take like you know it takes for this to work. It, right now, it, it takes a team of people. So it's yeah. not, there's no easy button for this just yet. Okay. So I got ahead of you before, Tony, I apologize, but let's move now to the, uh, the, the tools and so on. Yeah. So, um, you know, the tools of network automation, there's lots of tools and people have you know, various opinions on those tools, et cetera. But like generally what we see a lot of is Ansible, Python, Nornir in terms of the automation platforms, APIs and libraries. That's one of the biggest things that we have now that we haven't really had. If we want to make a remote programmatic change, like like you mentioned earlier on, we would typically write some script in Tickle, uh, expect uh, the, mm-hmm. we would write it in in expect, and it would pretend to be an interactive user. But you would you could, you'd run into all sorts of problems with that because if a you know I'm looking for login and password where the L and the P are lowercase, but maybe the code <laughs> changed that it made yep. them uppercase L. Yeah, I've had scripts fail for that yep. before. Yes, so. I have too. That's why I'm laughing. It was miserable to keep up with those things. Yep. Yeah. So the the screen scraping has traditionally not been a good way to do it. Um, uh, SNMP was supposed to be the way that we do this, the, the universal way that we make configuration changes. I don't know when the last time I ever, I don't think I've ever, well, that's not true. I, knew, I do remember one time there was one product that had a GUI that use SNMP on the back end, write SNMP write. But you know how rare is that today? There's very, very rare that anyone implements, even implements uh, SNMP write functionality into their platform. And most of the time when we enable SNMP, it's, it's just read only. And we're just pulling very simple stuff from it. So, well, exactly. Because back in the day, SNMP read, great. You can pull all kinds of information. It felt safe. SNMP write, something about it like made me anxious. Yeah, I couldn't put yeah. my finger on what it was, but yeah, it made me it made me anxious. I could go on for an entire episode of the, the you know the limitations of SNMP. They they didn't with HTTP, we've got TLS, what used to be called SSL. And um, it was separate, but SNMP baked in the encryption for SNMP version three and it used outdated hashes. And it, yeah, you, you were right to be anxious. Um, and SNMP version one and two were completely unencrypted. There was no encryption mm. whatsoever. So yeah, SNMP was not, not a good choice, still not a good choice for making changes. So two things have come along that have really made it reliable. So we're not we're not making these awkward, clumsy expect scripts we can make these reliable scripts in in Python or even Go or something else um, that's APIs. 
So whether it's a REST API, a JSON RPC, XML RPC, gRPC, these different types of uh, APIs that we can access these devices remotely, reliably, or a really good screen scraper li library uh, called uh, NetMiko that it's a screen scraper, but it's reliable enough to trust, to be able to, to write, a, write a script, to push a config, pull some information from a device, et cetera, to do it reliably. So we've got the methodology now to reliably configure these devices remotely. So that's been a big thing, and that's only been in the last you know 10 years. Where are we at with APIs from the vendors? Um, have they pretty much across the board, can you assume there's going to be some sort of an API that you can consume if you've got a recent enough version of the network operating system? I think it's safe to assume that anything that's coming out new, yes, it's, there's some sort of API, whether it's RESTConf, NetConf, GNMI, a more vendor-specific implementation, NX API, EAPI. So there's a lot of these APIs out there, but there's also, as, as you and I both know, there's a ton of equipment out there that's kind of older, not kind of older, but it is a lot older. <laughs> yep. They may not they may not have APIs. I think the service providers, I think they really have to deal with that more than we do in the you know the data center where it's luxury because data center switches are typically cycled out as quickly as the servers are. So most data center switches aren't more than five years old for the most part. So um, they've all got APIs from all the vendors, but uh, some of the network routers and and so forth may not. But like I said, uh, NetMiko and, and the other screen scraping libraries have progressed to the point where they're sophisticated enough. They can handle those like changes in like login and password prompts and so forth. So they, we can write reliable scripts. We can treat them as like an API. Now, APIs yeah. are better, but um, it, they're good enough to get the job done. With Ansible, Python, Nornir, uh, and, and using those to talk to various APIs that are out there, those are tools, Tony, is how I think of it. That is, here's tools, you can make something with these tools, but by themselves, they don't particularly provide you network automation as such. What if I don't want to build something you know, with the tools? I mean, they're, they're cool, but gosh, I'm strapped for time. There's just a couple of us on the team. Could I go a different direction? Yeah, there's uh, vendor specific. So those are the open source tools, and they generally work with most of the vendors. So there's Ansible modules for Cisco, Juniper, Arista, A10, F5, like all the big ones, and uh, most of the little ones as well. Same thing for Nornir, Python, et cetera. But there's also vendor specific tools. So Cloud Vision for Arista. There's the APIC and DNA Center for Cisco, although I think DNA Center just recently changed to, was it Catalyst Center? I think they rebranded as of Cisco Live uh, US yeah, in I, June 23, yeah. Someone needs to have an intervention with Cisco management <laughs> to stop renaming things. <laughs> they, <laughs> yes, they, they always do that. <laughs> But, you know, jokes aside, yeah, there are these these vendor specific tools are only going to work with that vendor, of course, but they tend to be more the easy button. I want to I'm going to bring up Arista Cloud Vision because, again, it's a product that I work with a lot. I teach it is um, there's something called studios and it's a it's a web form and you fill in the the basic information like a VRF, VLAN ID and a cast gateway and it will generate an EVPN configuration for you and you don't have to code anything it's all it's it, the operator can doesn't need to know python doesn't need to know ansible etc they can just go in fill in some parameters have a have their own runbook um in the knock or something and then they can deploy a config it does pre-validation checking on the syntax um, and you've got some dashboards on, on when, when it's been deployed. So it's not quite CI/CD, but it's pretty close. And it's the learning curve is very low. 
you can you can learn how to operate it in a day or two. The same thing with um, some of the others out there. Uh, Ariz, uh, Cisco's APIC is a little bit, actually not a little bit, is, is a much higher learning curve, but it, that just is all the different knobs and, and dials on the APIC network that or the uh, ACI network you can do. Um, and I have less experience with DNA Center, I guess, Catalyst Center. But yeah, these are vendor-specific tools that do that automation, that do that configuration generation, configuration management, deploy the configuration, and and perhaps some pre- and post-testing. Um, and, uh, and their learning uh, curves are generally lower. A couple of comments on on some of those tools. Some of them will claim to be multi-vendor on on some level. So I think uh, I think you might yeah. have mentioned Abstra, which is a uh, yeah. was was bought by Juniper, and it's part of their data center. It's it's for configuring data center fabrics, which is Abstra's yeah. primary purpose in life. Well, that's not uh, strictly limited to Juniper switches. It'll talk to a whole bunch of different switches. That's one of its hallmarks and why yeah. it became popular. That's uh, that's a thing. And there are some other tools in there that will have something, some kind of acknowledgement that, that there are other vendors out there other than their own yeah. <laughs> and, and may give you some automation capability. Now, there's also tooling that falls somewhere in the middle between open source and vendor specific in that it's a commercial product that is intended to work uh, multi-vendor. So if you're a service provider, you might have heard of Anuta Networks. Anuta will allow you to build a service catalog, works multi-vendor, and will automate the provisioning of a variety of different services that you build up in that catalog, for example. Um, Itential is another one, uh, another packet pusher sponsor, but they uh, they can work with a variety of network automation tools and libraries and kind of be in the middle to give you a, a, a one interface to work with a network automation approach um, so that you're not dealing with, you know, if you've got six different vendors on your network and you're not dealing with six different tools. You can deal with Itentional. Itentional will deal with the six different tools if you want. Uh, Glueware I've mentioned before is another one that kind of falls into that space where it can deal with multi-vendor. And then there's other ones too. I'd have to go digging through notes to see you know who I'm forgetting yeah. at the moment. But just be aware that there's this other category of uh, third parties that do network automation and have different specialties and niches that they fall into that are worth exploring. Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of these tools, whether they're vendor specific tools or they're uh, commercial tools that work with multiple vendors, a lot of them can be automated themselves. For example, CloudVision has an API, so I can run Ansible against CloudVision to, to instantiate some things, to kick off some processes. Same thing for ACI, the APIC has a, is a, has a REST API. And um, that's that script I, I talked about, Carl, you fill out a, a bunch of stuff in, in Excel and then it goes into the API and then instantiates through API, all the networks on all the ports, et cetera. So there's, we can combine a lot of these tools as well. Do you see most people getting started with Ansible, uh, Ansible, Python? Do you see them going that direction and kind of rolling their own automation? Or do you see folks investing more in a vendor ecosystem automation? I think uh, it kind of depends. Like, um, um the vendor specific tools are generally have a lower learning curve mm. and they're the easy button but they're not as flexible there's if you need the flexibility then you start looking to writing your own playbooks or so forth uh, they also generally some of them will have an additional cost so if you're looking to avoid that cost then you might use something like ansible ansible's free there's a paid, you can pay for support in a subscription from, from Red Hat, but you can also just use it for free. Same thing for the, for the others like Python, Nornir, 
uh, you can run those free. So I see kind of a mix of both. I see some organizations that are like, we have this specific need in place. We've got these free open source utilities that will serve that function very nicely. So they go with that uh, versus a vendor specific tool, which if you have some functionality that you need, it, it might be hard to get the vendor to implement that. So that kind of thing. I will caution for, for what it's worth. If you're listening to us talk about the open source tools and go, that's for me, it's free. I don't have to go to my boss and get budget. I can just go download these tools and figure them out and make them do the thing and off we go. Yeah, but the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. And now you've got these scripts that you got to maintain. That's a whole thing. And it's, it's something you think initially it helps you save time. But in the long run, it is technical debt that you're creating. You've got to keep up with these scripts and uh, mature them and grow them. And you're kind of building an automation ecosystem within your company that can become a full-time job for someone. I've talked to several people now where that's really what's happened in order for them to make a go of it. They had to dedicate a human that had some coding skills to actually build their automation system internally out of these open source tools and then maintain that thing. So it, it, it can be, even though it's maybe easy to get into from a budget perspective, from a time perspective, you could be biting off more than you can chew, depending on how heavy you want to get involved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's definitely a learning curve and a, and a higher sophistication for some of these tools. And one of the recommendations that I typically make is uh, adopt a platform and not a language. So Ansible is written in Python, but it's a platform. So you can write playbooks for network automation using Ansible. And I generally try to shy people away from just having a collection of Python scripts because that, you know, there's a million ways to do something in Python and like a hundred thousand of them are good ways. So someone coming in without having worked with that person writing those scripts, all of a sudden is looking at the script and like, all right, okay, what are you trying to do? And I've seen that happen as well, where it's like, it's very difficult to do knowledge transfer um, on these very specific implementations of, of Python scripts. Whereas if you have Ansible or Nornir, these are platforms that have a more regimented way to do things. So the learning curve is lower and the tr knowledge transfer is much more simple in terms of like, I can look at a playbook. If you're familiar with Ansible, I can look at a playbook and I know exactly what they're doing because there's not as many ways to do that mm. kind of thing. So yeah, that's absolutely a risk or not a risk, but that's absolutely a pitfall that can happen is, is you get one person writing all of these like scripts and stuff and then they win the lottery and quit and <laughs> the rest of the team is like, you know, going through uncommented Python logic and they have no idea what's going on. Unless it's like just a simple like 20 line Python script. I've got a bunch of like 20 line Python scripts that do like one thing. It's pretty easy to figure out what they do and how they do it. But if you're automating, if you're doing CICD, I would recommend not writing your own Python implementation of that. Use the tools that already do that kind of thing. Training is going to be more readily available. There's plenty of Ansible training now, even for Ansible automation training. Same thing for Nornir, which I think is probably a good uh, <laughs> a good segue into the next um, topic is just how does my organization prepare? Yeah, well, that was what I was wondering, too, because with the explosion of different methods, even though we're, we're, as we said early in the show, we're talking about network automation being in the early mature phase. Is there kind of a standard body of training that I can go to for, for network automation specifically? Or is it more like, 
yeah, the, we're going to teach you how to use these tools and you can kind of figure out the rest. I mean, I guess where I'm going, Tony, is you, to me, a good network automation is a, it's a system and it's a way of thinking that is more than just how to use the tool. There's a little more involved than that. Can I get trained for all that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. All the, the Most of the vendors now are doing automation tracks. So Cisco's got DevNet, um, Arista has level five. In fact, I wrote um, a lot of the level five course. I teach the level five course. Um, which teaches the automation tools that uh, some of the, it teaches uh, Ansible. So you're using Ansible with Arista, using Cloud Vision with Arista. Um, so there's, there is training you can get. And in, in automation is just like any other acquisition from an enterprise. Like um, you don't have someone goes out and buys an HP switch and puts it into the data center and just starts plugging stuff into it and just kind of like, makes their own rogue data center. Um, you have an evaluation period. You take a look, you take a look at the specs, you take a look what they can do. You might do a POC proof of concept and you do a, a careful evaluation to select your next platform. So the same thing for automation. There's a lot of choices out there, open source, vendor specific, um, commercial that works with multiple vendors. So you've got to figure out what are you trying to do? What's the problem you're trying to solve and what solution is going to work best in your environment? Then you need to make sure that your team is trained on it and all of the team and, or at least all the team that's going to be working with this. It can't, it shouldn't be just a rogue automator. Someone who just writes scripts in a vacuum, like training, training, training. That's incredibly important. And there's lots of resources today for that training, either from the vendor themselves. And you can usually, if you buy, you know, if you buy enough of anything, they'll throw in training oftentimes, or you can negotiate a, a, that. But for some of the other tools, like the open source tools, there's, there's like CBT nuggets will have stuff. And you know, there's plenty of places you can get this training now. And you absolutely should. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to implement if you have like a Cisco data center and you move to Juniper, you're not going to just throw a bunch of Juniper switches into a network and then hope everything works, you're going to get training on that new platform. Whatever platform you're moving to, you're going to get training on. And it's no different with automation. The open source tools, should I expect to be spending a reasonable amount of money for a course for some definition of reasonable amount? Or is there so much training out there that it's kind of driven the price down where I can go to Udemy and for 20 bucks, get a pretty good course that's going to help me with network automation? I think it's more of the latter. It's certainly not more than it would be for commercial training. Um, there's certainly courses you can take like level five with Arista. I, I mean, again, it's because I'm familiar with it. Um, uses open source tools and Arista specific tools. Uh, DevNet does the same thing. They use Python and PyATS and some of their modules. So it's a combination thereof. Uh, but if you want to just learn, um, honestly, I learned Ansible off of YouTube. And there was plenty of resources. And, you know, as a, as a networking person, you have to have a, well, you don't have to, but it really does help to have a natural curiosity about this kind of stuff to try to go in, look at it, play with it, figure stuff out. Uh, the training has gotten a lot better than when I started, even like three or four years ago with Ansible. But um, there's uh, like uh, Jeff Gearling has, his Ansible course is more towards server automation, but the, the basics of Ansible are there. You learn what a playbook is. You learn what to play, what a task, what a module is, how to, how to write a playbook, an inventory file, et cetera. And he, he's got this free stuff. He did it during lockdown. And I'll give you the link to put it in the show notes. Um, he did it in lockdown and it's free. He's got a free Python or a free Ansible 101 course. And it's absolutely amazing. 
So I don't have to spend a fortune to get started. Um, no. Another good tip that I, I heard you say is if I'm buying some new data center switching platform, let's say, I should be working with the vendor to make sure I'm getting training. That should be thrown into the buy. It's not something they should be charging right. me a bunch extra. I should be able to negotiate that. Training's coming with this, right, guys? Yeah, or even if you pay for it, it's going to absolutely be worth it. Um, you know, I'm saying that as a trainer myself. So of course I'm going to, you know, I'm <laughs> going to highlight training, but <laughs> it really is important when you're adopting a new platform. I've seen a vendor roll out a very complex product, and they gave the the the, the customers two days of training, and you can guess how that went. It's two days was not enough to 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 be even prof mildly proficient on that product. Yeah, it's funny how how training goes. I've been in a lots and lots of classes over the years, and uh, and I always got value from them when deploying something new, because it gave me context. The, the training course was designed for me to understand what this thing was for and how to approach it, as opposed to figure it out, man. Good luck. You know, you get to know all the uh, the terminology, how the vendor thinks about the product, how they mean for you to use it, so that you're implementing it correctly. And I can't think of anything more important than that with uh, with automation because man there's so many ways to do it wrong yeah absolutely and you know as a final point here automation is not a silver bullet so it's not um it's just implementing it the virtue of implementing it it's not going to solve bad practices bad policies bad strategies or anything like that it has to be done correctly and you have to do it with a goal in mind it is it, just simply applying automation is not going to solve all your problems, but it can get you to a much better place if you do it right. Yes, uh, that that state of repeatability and uh, that state of knowing when you kick off that automation step, the thing that you just kicked off is going to happen without it, depending on you being awake and alert and getting every keystroke right you've already got it coded uh, effectively so that you know it's going to work right and you don't have to be 100% awake to have success with that model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Tony, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. And, and, and Tony, I've gotten ahead of you before. So before we hit the wrap, Tony, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Uh, no, I think that I think that's a, a, a good conclusion to that discussion. Very good. How do people follow you on the internet, Tony? So I blog at datacenteroverlords.com and you can find me on Twitter at T Burke. That's at T-B-O-U-R-K-E. You can also find me on YouTube, but it's like it's half skydiving videos and half <laughs> half tech videos. <laughs> you need to combine those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm diving out of this plane to teach you how to find a spanning tree root bridge. Let's talk about it. <laughs> there, actually, I might, I might video, actually try man. that one. Yeah, I'll try that sometime. <laughs> I watch that. We'll have those links to uh, find Tony online, as well as the Jeff Gearling Ansible course. And uh, my thanks to you, Tony, for pitching this idea and being willing to share your expertise on today's episode. And thanks to you out there for listening. Uh, don't be a stranger, by the way. You can interact with me and lots and lots and lots of other folks in the Packet Pushers world uh, by joining our Slack group. That's at packetpushers.net slash Slack. And if, if you tried to join our Slack group before and found the link wasn't working right, hey, that that is... That's true. That's a thing that was happening because Slack changed stuff and we didn't notice that our link was broken. But we have a new invite link. It's all fixed now. So you can sign up to join. I, it's at least a couple of thousand other people that are out there. Packet pushers and network nerds and cloud compatriots and security savants. They're all on that Packet Pushers Slack group. Packetpushers.net slash Slack. And of course, you can subscribe to the many other of our free technical podcasts, including Heavy Wireless, Kubernetes Unpacked, Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Strategy, and, and several more, including our weekly roundup of IT 
20 industry news along with free virtual donuts on the network break. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.